Something, okay, so there is a, a subject that is um, basic to all thinking that we call Machshava or Hashkafa, whatever you like to call it, and that is, perhaps we can, we can begin it with Maharal, but I must warn you it's a difficult subject, perhaps in some ways the most difficult subject or very difficult subject in this whole area, and people find it uh, difficult, people find it distressing even, and uh, <coughs> let's try to approach it. Begin like this. The Maral says in in, uh, in Sefer Breshis, earlier in Breshis, when Hashem says to Avram Avinu that he should not be afraid after the war of the five kings and the four kings, he says, "Al tira Avram Avdi, don't be afraid." I will protect you, don't be afraid, your reward will be great. Maral deals with the problem of what all those expressions mean. What were the reassurances? And he says that Avavavinu's problem was, <coughs> when Hashem said to him, don't be afraid, his concern was, had he perhaps merited an ace, that means, had he, the war against the four kings been won by a miracle, if so, the concern was that he would have his share in the world to come reduced, because the cloud that if a ace happens to you in this world, you have to pay from it from the world of Nisim, another world and therefore he'd lack his, <coughs> his reward. So that was one concern. On the other hand, his, his concern was this. Another issue was, if it was a nace, then he could rest the shore. On the one hand, the problem would be that he'd have his merit reduced. But on the other hand, he could rest assured that he never killed anyone inappropriately. Because Hashem wouldn't have done a nace to kill kings or individuals during the war who wouldn't deserve to die if they were tzaddikim. But when Hashem said to him, don't worry about this, don't be concerned, he thought, well, one of the possible meanings is maybe it wasn't a nace. Maybe this wasn't a nace and therefore your reward is assured. Your reward is assured because you never had a nace in this world, so it's not safe. But then the concern was, maybe he killed Sadiqim. And then Hashem had to say to him, don't worry, they will show him as well. The second reassurance was, don't worry about that, you didn't kill anyone in an unjustified fashion. Maral works, works on this. But what I'd like to extract from that discussion is an opening to another subject. And that is, you see very clearly in this Maral, and Rav Hartman in his notes points this out, and he refers to another Maral. Maral talks about this in, uh, in Bitochen, in the Nesivas. He says, you, you see clearly from this Maral a strange thing. And that is that there is a legitimate concern that Sadiqi might have been killed. But the question is, how can a person kill a Sadiq if by definition he's a Sadiq? That means if he doesn't deserve to die, if he deserves to die, Avram Avinu would have no concern. If he was involved in a war where his Ashgoch had demanded that he die at that point, there's no, no problem with Avram Avinu. His concern was they killed people unjustly. But how can you kill someone unjustly? What happens to, surely a person has Ashgoch? Surely there's Ashkocha, you can have the bitochen that Hashem is taking care of you in the way that you need or deserve. In other words, the subject that, the difficult subject we have to grapple with is, can one person ever harm someone else <coughs> in a way that's unjust? Or in a way that offends the Ashkocha of the recipient, of the victim? Or to put it in its correct tactical terms, can you ever harm someone when there's not a gzera on him to be harmed? You have to be very careful here because we have to talk about gzeras. We don't talk about for example, Hashem's idea, Hashem's knowledge that the person is or isn't going to... That's completely... If you think tonight's subject is difficult, that, that's, a, for, that's a real black belt. The question of Hashem's knowledge, foreknowledge, and how, how Bechira could operate on that level. We're not talking... We're talking about Gzeira. Gzeira is not Hashem's foreknowledge. It's a decree that's issued. And Gzeiras are clear... What Gzeira means exactly needs a lot of thought. But Gzeira is a decree that's issued that is chal on an individual. 
And Xero, under certain circumstances, could change. The Chazal talks in very great detail about Xero. It depends if it's given in a Nevoah. It's not given in a Nevoah. It's a Xero for good. It's a Xero for bad. But there's a, there's a level of Hashkocha that comes through what's called Xero. And the question we want to deal with this evening is, can somebody have Xero on him, for one thing, and then another human being do something to him other than what his Xero decrees? Right? That's the problem. It's a very serious question, a very difficult question, because either way you approach it, you appear to get into very difficult philosophical territory. If you say that you can never harm anyone to the extent that no gzera is chalomim for that harm, that means you can, never harm, you can never do to anyone anything other than what's going to happen to them anyway, then there, we have no problem in terms of the recipient. That means the recipient is always getting what he needs, deserves, whatever word you want to use here, but it seems to pull the teeth from the concept of Bukhira. That means how much can I... I can never really do anything to you. I can choose to be the agent. But whether the damage will be hal <coughs> on you, <coughs> or the benefit for that matter, really depends on what was going to happen to you anyway. And, and we certainly don't relate to the world intuitively that way. When someone harms someone else, it does not look to us as if that was going to happen anyway. As if it was in their shkach. It doesn't look that way. When you, when you reverse out of the parking lot this evening after your, after your shir, lost in thought, I hope, and someone else also lost in thought carelessly backs right into your car and makes a big dent, right? And you get out and start yelling at, well, you're amongst, you would get out and say, good evening. <laughs> Perfect minutes that you have. And then you say to the person, look what you've done to my car. And the person says, but you're an observant Jew, aren't you? And you say, yes. And he says, well, don't you believe in Ashkafa? You must have had it coming. How will we handle that when A... Uh, stay tuned, it's going to be a long night. <coughs> <coughs> the one option is, would seem to be that you can never do to anyone anything that wasn't going to happen to them anyway. That's one way to handle it. The other approach is, you could do something to somebody that they weren't gonna, wasn't going to happen. That's wonderful in terms of the power of al-Bakhira to affect other people, but it's very distressing in terms of a person getting what he doesn't deserve, need, what's nigzer on him, very distressing. Hold the questions for a few minutes. Let me try to <coughs> present a, just a, an overview of the subject and see if we can think it through. Let me perhaps start in a way that I, I hope you'll find interesting as, a, as an opening into the subject. <coughs> a long time ago, <coughs> during the days of the Pisgah Tshuva, the following incident occurred. There was one of the major Talmudah Chachamim of that generation, I don't know who it was, <coughs> this is recorded in the Tshuva of the Pisgah Tshuva, for those who would like to look it up, it's in, it's in Choshen Mishpat Yudches. He doesn't give all the background, but he certainly presents the question. But the background is this. This particular Talmud Chacham was visiting a commercial fair, I think it was in Leipzig, where people bought and sold and conducted business, Jews and non-Jews. And the system they had there for settling any litigation was they would make a basin. Even the non-Jews would subject themselves to the same form of arbitration and they would select Dayanim, three individuals, and they would hear the case. On one particular in in case, says the Bishkei Tshuva, according to the question he received, this particular knowledgeable individual was present, and two Jews had some financial problem, <coughs> so they duly constituted a base team. Two Dayanim were elected, <coughs> or chosen, and the third turned out to be no less than himself. In other words, you have two Jews from the chosen from the people who were there, and he was a particularly 
well-known or, or very competent Talmud Chacham, he was the third Ayin. And he records the following dilemma. He says, the case began to be heard, the evidence began to be led, and it became apparent to him soon after the case began that the other two judges were colluding dishonestly against the innocent party. They were lying, there's no question they weren't taking the case seriously. They were going to bring about a miscarriage of justice and he would be involved. The reason, as you know, I'm sure, is that a Dayan cannot, you know that in, in Halakha, a Dayan cannot re, re, um, record a minority opinion. The Halakha is that when the Basin gives a ruling, it comes down as a unanimous fiat. A Dayan is forbidden to go to the litigant afterwards and say, I was on your side, but they outvoted me. So he couldn't even disclose that he was against them. The ruling would, they would vote for the guilty party wrongly, he would vote the other way, and he would be overruled, and a miscarriage of justice would, would take place and he would be, he would be involved. So he, thought, he said, sat there and thought to himself, what could he do? So one option was he could vote for the truth, be overruled, and have this <coughs> travesty occur. So another option. The other option was to say, I don't know. Because Allah is, if a Dayan says he doesn't know, the case is closed or you add two more Dayanis, you know, you always have to have an odd number. So why in a British court, or an American court, so that they have 12 people on a jury, I've never figured out the recipe for disaster. But in Aloha, you can never have an even, an even number of people. So, so the case is closed, it begins again, whatever happens, but that immediate case is, 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 is closed and he would not have to. So you could say, I don't know, and that way get out of the problem. But he said his problem was, his dilemma was, in order to say, I don't know, he would have to lie. Because he didn't know. Now the question that he had was, what is the nature of truth in that situation? Is it to say the truth and have a falsehood result? Or is it to say false, that means I don't know, to have the truth result? What's called MS? You know, the person can... What? Can you say I haven't got an opinion? Yes, that's the li- it's a lie. He did have an opinion. <laughs> that's not MS. That's not giving Psak the way Lafim Masha and Abroyes. Well, how... That's right. How do you know what Hashem's Rotten is? You have to follow through the rules of Bethlehem. That's how you get to the Rosh Hashem. But we'll try to clarify this more. So, so you know that the voice can say that truth is contextual. You know, let's say you are... What is truth? Is it the literal naked meaning of the words or does the context count? For example, you're sitting at home and the phone rings. Your wife picks it up. From a tone of voice, you realize this is someone you don't want to speak to. So this is what you do. You step out the front door and you say... And your wife says, I'm sorry, he's not in. Is that called MS or Shek and Halakha? What's out? So the first can say you can't get away with that. Because the question is not asking on which side of the doorstep is your husband standing. They're asking, is he there? It's worse to do that than to stay in the room and say I'm not available. There's a deeper deception in it. So MS is something that, that's contextual. It's not a simple... So what defines Emmett in this situation? So he said he sat there thinking about it and he thought of a Rambam. <coughs> Hallmark of a Tamil Chacham isn't only that he knows but he can think of it on the, on the spur of the moment. And the Rambam deals with the Gemara. The Gemara says that if the Sanhedrin is voting on a case and you know that the rule is that they sat in a semicircle so they could see each other and they voted from junior to senior, right? So that a junior shouldn't be influenced by a prior senior opinion. And the Rambam is that if it's a capital matter then, like, you have to go according to Rabin, but you, have, you need a majority, and to convict you need a certain kind of majority, Gemara Sanhedrin talks about it, but there's one unique proportion of majority to convict that paradoxically acquits. 
not. And that is, as I'm sure you're aware, unanimous verdict. That means if all the Sanhedrin say guilty, then he is innocent, right? The Poiskim Mephashim talk about this. <laughs> One suggestion is because if they couldn't, if nobody could think of any justification, that means they could, no one argued in his favor at all, that is extremely suspicious. The fact that they were, first of all, all Jews agreeing, I mean, that definitely is, that's, that's definitely not normal. And if nobody could think of anything in his favor, we are concerned that the case wasn't examined closely enough, and therefore that case is possible. Now, the Rambam handles the following scenario. <coughs> Imagine you are all gentlemen of the Sanhedrin, I'm sure you're all eminently qualified. And now we have this person here on trial for his life, let's say. And now you've heard all the evidence, the voting begins. <coughs> you know, it's almost impossible to get a capital conviction in, in Aloha, but let's assume that, that we've got to that stage of the case this, at this point. Now we're going to start voting, right? You, you don't mind being a junior, do you? I mean, you've got to be major to be on the Sanhedrin. <laughs> so, is it, now we'll take the vote we'll go from junior to senior assume the vote goes like this guilty, guilty, death, death guilty, guilty all the way through the Sanhedrin and here we have the Mufla Shiva Sanhedrin the great champion authority of the generation and he's the last to speak and all the votes actually his vote have been guilty and he knows that the accused is guilty too you see the dilemma? If he now says his mind and says guilty, a murderer walks free. Actually, technically he doesn't walk free, but he doesn't get one of the dullest misses that he ought to get. But if he perverts what he says and says innocent, then the, victim, the, the accused will get what he knows he should get. Well, which is that? Should he say innocent to get a conviction which is MS? <coughs> or should he say the MS which is guilty and have a distortion of MS? What would you say? Well, that's the question for. He knows the halakha is that there has to be, if they all say he's then he's better off. Then that's the halakha, that's the end of it. Which is halakha? That he says he's guilty, and then he's That's quite right. The Ramam says he has to say guilty. He has to say what he judges. The fact that it turns out that the man's acquitted is his issue and not ours. Now, the Bishkei uh, so he said, when he thought of this Rambam, he thought maybe that's a precedent for what he finds himself. He's in the basin, the other two are saying false, he knows the MS. According to this, surely he should say the MS and have a falsehood result. Do, do you agree that's a good, a good precedent? The Peace Fetch of it doesn't agree with you. He, he finds another fault in this parallel. That's exactly the direction that he takes. Let me try to explain this. Let, let's examine our subject and see if we can come full circle and understand, and understand this issue. Let's take a step back. Wh- where we're heading is to try to understand this difficult problem of one person's Bechira affecting someone else and hopefully we'll be able to circle around and come back and see how it applies to this case in Basin. <coughs> you have two approaches here. One is that a person can never harm anyone else, or help him for that matter, to the extent that wasn't already nigza or what would have happened in an equivalent fashion to that person. The other approach is that, in fact, you could do something to someone that he doesn't deserve. <clears throat> We're talking very, very extreme issues here. You know, Mr. A is walking down the street. What is his xera at that moment? Imagine he has a xera on him, no xera of misa. That means Hashem has not decreed death on him that day. You know, the, the, 
deep sources tell us that everybody's born with a case. Everybody's born with a last second of life that you cannot live beyond. Can't live beyond the case. Doesn't make much difference practically, just because we don't know what that is. But you can't live beyond that moment. Gemara is a bizarre example of people dying in the most bizarre ways because their last moment had arrived. You can't live beyond that time. You can, of course, foreshorten the time that you're given. The Rambam says, for example, you can do unhealthy things. You can do unhealthy things that foreshorten. You can speak Lashonara, foreshortens life. Some of Foshim say not paying a worker on time is a very potent way of losing time of life. And of course, once one has lost time of life, one can add it back. Certain squares, Achmos and Kala, happens to be a very potent way of adding back time to one's life. But let's assume this person is not yet at his case. This man's walking down the street. He's 25 years from the case that was given to him when he was born. And if you could interview Hashem at that moment, imagine you said to Hashem, what's your opinion of this individual? What's your gzera on this person for today? And Hashem says, well, not, nothing special. No, I wasn't going to end his life today. And at that moment, an individual turns the corner and tries to kill him. This is where our problem arises. If you say there's no way you can kill him because the person didn't have a gzera of Misa, you're seriously limiting our free will in the world. Or more accurately, all you can ever hold the assailant guilty for is choosing and pulling the trigger. But the result has nothing to do with him. Or you have to say that although there's no gzera of Misa on this person, when another individual uses his free will, the person could die. Fine for the power of Bechira, but again, very distressing in terms of the victim who has no, has no Xeron. <coughs> those, are the two, those are the two horns of our dilemma. The truth is that both of these have a long pedigree in Torah literature. They probably begin as a Machlekes in the Zohar, and from that time on you will find both threads running through Torah sources. Let me try to speak out very, very briefly about both sides. For those who would like to take it further and, and, and seek a resolution of these two, there is an attempted resolution in Rabbi Friedlander's volume on Bechira. He does a lot of work on this to try to show where these two opinions can be brought together or examines the question of whether they can be brought together. But let's try to at least define the two, the two uh, uh, options clearly. Of course, if you want some serious homework, the homework is to take each proof that each side brings and see how the other side would deal with it. Because each side seemingly right, has very powerful arguments to back it up. <laughs> let's deal with, let's call it the first opinion. That you can never do anything to anyone beyond what is their zero. Can't help them or harm them. That means if someone wasn't going to die at that moment, nobody could kill him. And if somebody wasn't decreed to get a certain amount of money that day, there's no way you could give it to him. The person's needy, and you give stocker, right? You give it to that individual. The only interpretation, according to this way of thinking, is he was going to get that money that day anyway. You get the mitzvah, make no mistake. You get the mitzvah because you acted. You, did, you chose and you acted. But the result was not yours. The, the, the most famous author, perhaps, of this, of this opinion is the Rosadjogon. In Amunas Vedeus, but you find it elsewhere, the Chodos Alvobos goes this way, and many other later sources go this way as well. But Rav Sajja speaks it out very clearly that no one could ever do anything to anyone else <coughs> that was not <coughs> part of that person's let's call it gzera. English word destiny is not a non-appropriate word hard to find the right English word but it's not the person's gzera <coughs> and Rav Sajja puts it exquisitely uh, as succinctly as only the Rishonim can do before the Rishonim he says in just a few words in one brief sentence he says this that if somebody kills somebody all that happens is that a misser becomes a retzah. Uh, you can't say it better than that. That a death becomes a murder. 
It would have been a death. How do we know? Because he died. You never could kill someone who wasn't going to die. You couldn't do that to somebody else. No one's going to get what he doesn't deserve in terms of his own Ashkacha. And you know it's called a murder. You couldn't say it more sharply and clearly than that. But many others take the same line of thinking and express it in various ways. That's Rav Sajjah. The other opinion, the other opinion, in many ways, its own problematic or distressing elements, is that you can in fact hurt someone or help them <coughs> in a way <coughs> that was not decreed or would not have happened otherwise. The most famous source for this, without question, is Orachim. But before I go into that, let me sh- share with you just a very beautiful, brief proof I once heard personally from Yavrakov Weinberg from Baltimore. He put it like this. Again, very, very elegant and, and, short, and short proof. We say in Tachanun, Vayemer David el Gad, Nipla na biyad Hashem, ki rabim rachmav. Let, let us fall into Hashem's hand, because He is merciful. Ubiyad Adam, let me not fall into man, into the hand of man. In other words, David Amalek is standing in the wilderness and he's facing danger to his life and he has two options of escape. He can either escape through the wilderness, which he, in which case he'll face natural dangers, Mount Hungry, mountain lions, and who knows what else, or he can try to break through enemy lines, in which case he'll face humans who are trying to kill him. Now, if you assume that Hashgacha always gives you what you deserve, every bullet has a name on Every Philistine sword has a name on. Every hungry mountain lion fan has the appropriate name on. Then it doesn't matter which way you go. What's God working out which way to go? He's got a hashkoch. Hashem's taking care of him. You're only going to get what you need. If you become Chas a victim, it's only because that was your glare. What's the difference? Which danger is the agent of the hashkoch that acts on you? And you see, David doesn't think that way. He says, Hashem. Let me take the course of action that brings me face to face with animals only. Because animals have got no Bukhira. No self-respecting hungry mountain lion is going to touch me unless my Xerah is written on his, on his tooth. Whereas there's no trusting a Philistine soldier because he has Bukhira. And therefore, let's deal with Hashem ki Rabbi Rachamav. We can't say the same about people. It seems to be a very potent and pithy proof that it makes a difference whether you face a human danger or a non-human danger. <coughs> of course, again, you have to bear in mind that if Sajja is well aware of this, and he must have an approach to it that fits it in with his way of thinking. That's a wonderful exercise to do. But this is the, this is the proof that's offered. The, the most famous proof is the proof of that we've just been through in the Torah with the brothers, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'll just speak it out very briefly. The Rachaim famously says, but there are many others, the Al-Sheikh and the Malbim, both say the same thing on the same place. Not as explicitly, but they certainly say it, that when the brothers sold Yosef, what actually happened was they decided to kill him, they saw him approach him. They decided he was, without going into the whole background, he was a radev. They decided to kill him. And they said, let's kill him. Let's see what happens to his dreams. Says the Rachaim, they weren't speaking sarcastically, let's see what happens to his dreams and prove they're false. What they meant was, we judge that he needs to be put to death now. But can we be sure? Can we be absolutely sure that our justice is correct? Well, if we kill him, we can. Because if we kill him, by definition his dreams can never come true. He dreamed that we would bow down to him later. If he's dead, that can never happen. So not only will justice have been done, but it will be seen to have been done. And therefore, all we have to do is kill him, and that will immediately prove that his dreams were false, this was not Nebuah, etc. Reuben said to them, you're making a tragic mistake. I'm telling you that you could kill someone who does not deserve to die. The human hand, the hand of human free will is so powerful that his dreams may have been true. 
But when a human acts with free will, Hashem steps in and says, Oh, free will? I rearrange the whole program, the whole computer program, the whole system, and ever whatever nigs are beforehand, whatever, we'll find another way to deal with those. Actually, deep sources deal with how they could still be true in some other way. But without going into that. So, the brother said, what should we do? So Reuben said, well, look, there's a pit here. I throw him in, and the Torah, as we all know, the Gemara says in two places, the Torah says, boy rake and boy mayim. The Gemara says, mayim it didn't have, but snakes and scorpions it didn't have. By the way, the Maral says that it couldn't have been full of snakes and scorpions. Because there's a Mishnah that says that if you throw someone into a pit full of snakes and scorpions, you can't get away with saying that you didn't kill him. You know, there's a, there's a famous Yad drama in Sanhedrin dealing with how direct, your, how direct does the hand have to be to be called koi that killed somebody and how far can it be removed to be called groma, right? You can't hold someone's head under water and say, I didn't kill him, it was just a lack of oxygen. <laughs> that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. But there is a certain distance of separation. So, so the Mishnah says, if you throw someone into a pit of snakes and scorpions with a land of an animal and then they definitely bind him, that definitely, there's no, that wouldn't be any different than their killing him. So therefore, says Maral, the pit was not full of snakes and scorpions, but it was very dangerous. So let's throw him into the pit. Well, now, one second. Let's not kill him, but let's throw him into a pit of snakes and scorpions. Because the logic, said Ruben, was that if we kill him, he could die unjustly. But no self-respecting scorpion is going to touch him unless he has a zero of... And in fact, the Orachim points out very beautifully, the language is perfect. The language says, Vayasileu mi yadam. He saved him, Reuben saved him from their hand, says Orachim, miyad habukhiri, from their hand, from their hand, from human hand of free will, is what he saved him, but he didn't, he didn't they did not save him from his destiny or from his ashgacha, <coughs> because <coughs> that's not in their power, but what they did was saved him from the hand of human aggression, which can break the rules of the person's, uh, the recipient's ashgacha. That's the famous, <coughs> that's the famous Orachim, and there are many, many other sources that say the same thing. <coughs> Just mention one <coughs> that comes to mind <coughs> briefly, then the Tiv says, when it, ca- when it came to Yosef and Yehuda arguing, you see another example of the same thing. He puts it very beautifully. Actually, he has a long piece on this, this very point about one person's Bechira affecting someone else. But in this particular uh, case, he puts it like this. He says, when Yehuda stepped forward and said to Yosef that um, I am I'm here to, to defend my brother Benjamin, you should not take him, take me instead, says in the Tiv, what really was going on there was, Yehuda up to that point had not threatened violence. Only at this moment, Vayigash threatened violence if necessary. Says in the Tiv, the reasoning was like this. Up to that point, the brothers were sure they were guilty. They didn't understand all the details, but they knew for sure they were guilty. Right? They said it because of what we did and so forth and so forth. And therefore, when Yosef was tormenting them, Yehuda never felt he could threaten Yosef with violence because he knew that they, this was their comeuppance. Hashem had decided to take out their sin on them in this fashion. But when Yosef said to him, I found the cup in his, in his sack and therefore I want him. You can all go. At that point you would have said this doesn't make any sense. Up to now the reason we were in this fix was because we were guilty. Now this Egyptian wants to keep the only one of us who was not guilty. He wasn't present at the sale of Yosef. We were guilty of that sin. Therefore when we were having a difficult time there's no question we deserved it. Violence isn't going to help. This is our But when Yosef said to him capriciously as it seemed to him <coughs> I want Binyomi and you can all go. We can go who guilty? You want to keep the one young youngster who wasn't guilty at all? This is your malicious, capricious intent. This is not Ashgacha. Therefore, I'm going to threaten violence because, in other words, <coughs> Yehuda's thinking, according to the Tziv, was, 
up to now Hashgacha was, was playing itself out now you want to do something that's clearly not our Hashgacha you could impose that on someone sure you could and I can interfere with that too that's how he, that's how he approaches that piece and there are many other examples as well so excuse me why did they sell him why did they sell him in the first place yeah it was safe for the pick why did they sell him you mean why didn't they recognize the nace yeah it's one of the questions that's raised on the Rukhan. There are many others. There are many others as well. How could they judge him in the first place if they were brothers and how can they make a bait? There are many other questions. <coughs> but fortunately, I'm not going to be here next week. Robert Hartman can <coughs> no doubt answer those questions. Um, the now, we seem to have two very, very diametrically opposed options. One, you can never do something to somebody else. You can never do a kindness to anyone else, right? You do a kindness for your wife? No, she had it coming. She had it coming. You get the mitzvah, maybe, but you know, she wouldn't got that kindness somehow. You, you can't, you can never affect anyone, help or harm, except play into the hands of their destiny and take full responsibility, of course. No question about that. The second approach is, you could actually do something to somebody that is not in the hashkocha, and that is a very a frightening thought from the perspective of the respect. Are these two views, in fact, so far apart? There are many variables that bring them closer together. And by the time you've been through all of these, the gap between them, in practical terms, is probably not that big. Let me speak out some of the variables. <coughs> we can't go into them all fully. <coughs> but let me speak out some of the variables that modify what we've called the second opinion. In other words, <coughs> are we saying that someone can harm someone, carte blanche, whatever, one, whatever you want, your free will can actually do, or are there limitations? There are a number of limitations. The most important and famous is that the opinion of the Orachayim that you can harm someone is only to the extent that they lack schus. In other words, when we say that one human being can affect another, we mean only to the extent that the victim is not protected by adequate schus. Or put it another way, you need more schus, more merit, to protect yourself against humans than against non-humans. Or put it another way, people are dangerous, in case you hadn't noticed. People are dangerous. Other things in the world are not more dangerous than the situation yeah, that defines the situation, but people can be more. How much more? Depends on the vulnerability of the recipient. If a person has enough schus, they'll be protected against even that degree of aggressive bechira. <coughs> there's no problem with that at all. There's no, there's no hashkafa problem there. If you play in the traffic and get harmed, <coughs> there's no stirrer of hashkafa you got it because you put yourself in danger. There's no Bechira working... At but again, the problem doesn't arise. That's true. Because now there's a din. Now a din is... But we don't have a... Again, we don't have tonight's problem when you put yourself in danger. When you put yourself in a dangerous situation, the reason something dangerous may happen to you is because it's put yourself in a dangerous situation. There's no stirrer there between you're not deserving it and somebody's Bechira giving it to you. You do deserve it. You shouldn't put yourself there. When you put yourself under that leaning wall, like the Gemara says, a din is open in Shemaya against you. You open that din. So we don't... Okay. What? The other is what? Yes, that's true. That's true, that's true. There's severe limitations to this. But I want to speak out just a couple of them. If a person has full schus, what we call Tzadi Gomel, then he can't be touched. The classic historical example of that is Mordechai. Mordechai knew that he could stand up to Haman for all background reasons why his schus was strong in that area <coughs> and he could play the very dangerous game of driving Haman into such an anti-Semitic frenzy that he was self-destruct. 
But that's a very dangerous game. The Kalal in, in the world, after Nebuah ended, is Eretz Nitna Biyad Rasha. It's a possible game again. Eretz Nitna Biyad Rasha. The world is run, in case again you hadn't noticed, the world is not run by loving, <coughs> righteous, altruistic individuals only worried about your well-being. The world is run by malicious, evil, self-serving, yeah, power-hungry individuals. And Eretz Nitna Biyad Rasha. Therefore, the principle, Rav Henkin used to say, that in Tanakh times, the principle was to face evil in a head-on battle. He went and rode out the battle. David Amalek went out and he battled evil. In the, in the post-prophetic era, in what he called the Talmudic era, the, the era of Torah Shabbat, now the strategy of a Jew is to walk between the raindrops with diplomacy because the strength is not on our side, it is on the other side, and therefore you don't stand up to evil where you can, where you can avoid it because Eretz Nitzvah Yad Rasha. But to stand up to Haman, in those circumstances, Purim was the very beginning of the phase of Torah Shabbat, just the very ending of the phase of Torah Shabbat. Then to stand up to an individual like that and drive him into such an anger against the Jewish people, Mordechai knew he needed a full house of protection. <coughs> if you have that schus, then you'll be protected. But to the degree that a person's schus is lacking, to that degree, the fear with Yosef was that Yosef might not have done the crime that they had accused him of, deserving to die, but he might not have enough schus to protect him. That means he might have done something that was wrong. Enough to open a vulnerability that the Bechiru could affect him more than he deserved. That's the issue. By the way, this doesn't have to be your own schus. This could be someone else's. Right? Unlike, unlike in a human based in where din is meted out regardless of all the collateral damage. The person is harmed, let's say, in a, in a, in a secular system, he goes to jail. But his wife suffers and his mother and his children also. But Hashem's justice is like that. Right? And therefore, the schus and the damage all tie in. So for example, this person is walking down the street and someone tries to kill him Maybe his wife has a schus that she doesn't deserve to be a widow, right? And not necessarily him. This, by the way, has practical application. <coughs> and here's one. This is the reason that some people don't buy life insurance. Now, life insurance is good. It's a good idea. Modern people say you should take it out. It's a good idea. But there is a swirl of some people not to take out life insurance. Why? Well, if Mr. A is walking down the street and he's got no life insurance policy and Mr. B tries to kill him, Hashem looks down and says, but one second, if I allow B to kill A, you know, his wife needs him, he brings home the bacon, or whatever he, whatever he brings home. And, um, and therefore, and therefore, you know, I can't allow this to happen, so Hashem might stop stepping. However, Mr. A is walking down the street, and he's got a hundred million pound life insurance policy when B tries to kill him. Hashem looks down and says, hmm, your wife's okay. In some cases, she's probably better off. <laughs> With all due respect. And therefore, and therefore, this is a good strategy to make yourself as indispensable to as many people as possible. Make yourself, make so many people dependent on your stocker and my Tovin that when you are walking down the street and someone turns the corner, Hashem can look down and say, you know what, it's just too darn complicated. I'm going to put up with you a little longer because it's too messy to rearrange all the, the variables. It's not the highest motivation for stocker, but it's a, it's kosher. And therefore, <coughs> that is one practical output. But, Again, the measure of schus that a person has is one uh, mitigating factor or a modifying factor on someone's bechira. Not we, We're not saying anyone can do whatever they want to anyone else under all circumstances. We're saying that the person needs more schus to be protected against human bechira than against other agencies. That's one exception. That's one factor. And there are many others. Without going into detail, war has a different ashkoka entirely. War, there's a whole different Indian when it comes to war. Um, there's also a difference when a group is threatened as opposed to an individual being targeted. 
Rabbi Khanan has a piece where he explains that when a group of people is threatened, there are different types of ashkocha that are possible. For example, if a ship is sinking, there are two possibilities. Either it could be that everybody's on that ship because their time of death is all the same. That's called mazminam lapundak echad. Hashem has invited them, as it were, to buy a ticket on the same ship because the other possibility is that that's not so, but someone on that ship is going down and oile rosha oile Someone else is there at the wrong time and place. And of course the massive difference is whether trying to escape will help or not. In the first type scenario, trying to escape is not going to help. You were invited there for a reason. In the second type scenario, trying to escape certainly could make a difference, right? Because people could be affected by it. That's another, another scenario. Um, there are other exceptions as well. A, a king or a prime minister or a president or somebody with major political power by definition has no bukhira or as no Bukhira in terms of what happens to his subjects. Lev malachim v'sarim v'yad Hashem. That's the posuk that Hashem, as it were, controls the heart. What it means, needs analysis. Does it mean that they have no Bukhira, like Paroi, after he lost his Bukhira? Does it mean that they have Bukhira, but whether they'll carry out there, that means whether the result will be felt, will default to our first opinion only, and we deprive him only of the second topic? That needs analysis, but there's a... The irony in Western society, of course, is that when someone's elected president, Anything says real power. In Torah eyes, it is only he becomes transparent at that moment. By the way, the Poiskim say that voting for this reason is only only ishtadlus. When people urge us to vote, the mitzvah to vote when the Gedolim tell us to get out and vote, whether it's in Israel or any place else, it's ishtadlus. It's no more meaningful than trying to earn a living or any other ishtadlus. It's not we controlling the destiny of what will happen. It could be a mitzvah, but it's ishtadlus. Anyway, so those are, some, those are some of the variables that can modify um, this, uh, this second opinion. D- do we, what, when does Shira end? Let me, let's just summarize. We said like this. There are two possible positions here. One is that you never really do anything to anyone else other than they have coming in a sense. Of course, you take responsibility, get the merit. The other is that you could do something to someone that they do not deserve. There is an apparent stirrer in the Chinuch on this question. Let me finish by trying to present to you this stirrer. I think a very beautiful thing to understand and leave you with that as a final thought and we'll use this to come back to our case of the basting and show how it reflects on that. And, I, and I'd urge you, as you think through this issue, as you come through very, go through various Torah sources, try to identify on which side of the debate do they, do they come down and how would they handle that fascinating exercise. The problem is that the Chinuch seems to take both views. And that's not possible. We're talking about a major principle of Bechira <coughs> Nashkocha. So we'd have to try and find a resolution. This I heard from the Moshe Shapiro. Try to share it with you uh, as best I can. There are two mitzvahs in the Chinuch, each of which appear to go according to an, a conflicting mitzvah. The first is the mitzvah of um, Natira and the Kama. When, when the, when the, the Chinuch goes through in Reish Mem Aleph, Reish Mem, Reish Mem Aleph, he goes through the mitzvahs or the prohibitions of taking revenge and bearing a grudge, right? Why should you not? You know, Chinuch doesn't only give you the parameters of the mitzvah, he also gives you Mishor She'a mitzvah. Why would Hashem want us to do this or not, or not do this? First of all, the definition of revenge and material. Revenge is doing something to somebody exactly that he did to you, as he did to you, right? You go to your neighbor and say, can I please borrow your lawnmower? And he says, no. Next week he comes over and says, can I please borrow yours? You say no. If you say no, because he said no, that's called Nekama, you are forbidden to do that. 
Natira bearing a grudge is where you go to your neighbor and say, can I please borrow your lawnmower? He says no. Next week he comes over and says to you, can I please borrow yours? And you say, sure, I'm not like you. That is bearing a grudge, right? If you're a, if you're a, a Torah observant Jew, you have to say nothing and give him the lawnmower, right? They tell the children always a story about a fellow who was crawling through the desert about to die of thirst when another fellow rode past on a horse, saw him and ignored him, left him to die and rode on. Miraculously, the fellow survived and sometime later found himself the president of a big business corporation when one day his office door opened and a man came in begging for a job and he recognized the face of the man who left him to die in the desert. If he would have refused him the job, he'd be guilty of Nakama. If he would have given him the job and reminded him, he'd be guilty of Nakama. And therefore he said nothing and gave him the job, which is what you should do. Of course, if the man's applying for a job for which he seems inappropriate, for example, to be the tender, gentle caregiver of frail little old ladies, and then you judge that the man may be inappropriate, so that's, that's different. That's, if your neighbor destroys lawnmowers, you can say no, right? We are talking only where it's not inappropriate. But that is... Now, the, 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 the Chinook says, why would Hashem want us not to take revenge? What's the thinking behind the mitzvah? And he says this, Imagine someone harmed me. Here's an individual who's harmed me and I have a very powerful urge. Nakama, revenge, is a very powerful urge and the world understands that it's a very sweet thing to see somebody get exactly what he did to you. I have a very powerful urge to do to this person what he did to me. Right? And the Torah says to me, no, don't do it. You know why? Because you know why that thing happened to you? Scoffer. You must have had it coming. What do you want against him? You're being very... Like the Chodesh Chaim says, Rabbi Khanan mentions it in Exodus of the Meshichah, that when a person hits a dog with a stick, the dog turns around, bites the stick. He doesn't know that there's a hand that wields it. So if this person was the cause of your harm, why are you anxious to take revenge against the individual? You must have had it coming. And therefore, don't look to him. That's the Shosheh Amitza aspect of this thing. Which is... He's punished for that action. Not only is it, also you deserve that it to you, but you wouldn't be punished he was responsible to make sure oh he's 100% responsible Let, let's get this clear in, according oh there's no question about that according to both sheets this evening when a person does something does harm to another person he's 100% accountable he's going to take it to base for the damage he gives you a error and he gets the mitzvah but the question the philosophic question is what is going to happen to me anyway that's our question so the, the Kiddush says to you but look look to your own dispensation why He's not saying don't take it to base him if he damaged you. But that's not Nakama. Then he's doing Nakama's Nakama. <laughs> so, he, which of these two opinions does it seem to be? Clearly the first, it would seem to be. You need to look in the lotion. Here's the second example that appears to be a theory. In Tafkuf Chaf Dalet, which is Adim Zemimin, the Chimot says this. You know, there are two famous questions on Hazama, right? Yeah, Hazama, right? You have an individual on trial for his life here. Two individuals here, two Adims say that he's guilty. Two Adims say, not simply contradict the Adims, if they, if they contradict the Adims, of course, then the case is closed, right? And all Adims remain kosher. Right? Except for one of each pair. You, you know, if two say, if two say one Adims and two say another, then tray and tray dissolve, all four remain kosher. Tomorrow these two will be believed, and the next day, but not one of these and one of those together. Because they're for sure it's a lie. That's for sure not. But Hazama is where these two say that the, ki- the person committed the crime and these two say that those two couldn't have seen the crime because they were with us at some other place at that time. That's the there are two peculiarities in Hazama. One is that the Torah says you give 
to the first two Aedim what they tried to do to the victim. If it was a death sentence, they have to get killed. And the second, that, that, that one, the, the one feature of, of Hazama, and that peculiarity there, of course, is why are the second two believe to say that the first two are framing the victim, maybe they're framing the first two. That's a famous question. And that's amenable to various types of logic. I'm not going to go into that now. But the peculiarity that, in fact, as it happens, the Maharal is famous for dealing with one famous, famous treatment of this problem is that the victims, the two Aedim, only get what they try to do to the victim if the sentence had not yet been carried out. That's very peculiar, right? The Maharal is a famous Kabbalistic insight into this, couched in non-Kabbalistic terms and many other <coughs> things. But the Kenneth also hasn't approached it. Again, let's get clear. These two individuals say that this person killed someone, right? These two show that they were liars. Now the din is like this. If the person's not yet been killed, for example, the din is heard, case closed, death sentence, there's no death row in Halakha, the person gets killed immediately, he gets marched out to be killed. Just before they kill him, these two rush in and they say, Oi, stop! To the face! We call back the accused, what's your testimony? They say, these two are liars, they were with us. We save and acquit the accused and kill the two lying ones. But, if the man's marched out to be killed and is in fact executed dead, and then these two fellows rush in and say, Wait, it's a mistake! Nothing there. Even if they testify that the first two witnesses were liars and they killed somebody! Nothing doing. Scott free two witnesses. No problem. That's very weird. They try to kill somebody and fail, they get killed. They successfully killed somebody falsely and they find. That's a famous question. The Chinook says, I will give you Katsas time. A little bit of a reason here. Okay? And he says as follows. But now, you have to stay with me carefully. He says this. If the man wasn't executed and the witnesses proved to be liars, you know why you killed him? The Torah says that Kashem Zabon. They tried to do it, they get killed. But if the man was marched out and killed, you know why we do nothing to the witnesses? Because if he was killed, he must have had it coming. Now, which opinion is that? Okay. Okay, and the first would see. And here comes the complication. I hope you appreciate this. He then throws in additional light. <coughs> he says, the reason that if he got killed by Bastin, he must have had it coming, is because in Bastin nothing ever goes wrong. Because Elohim Nitzah Ba'adas Adayamim. Perfect. Elohim Nitzah Ba'adas Hashem sits together, and he quotes it as, Elohim Hashem sits together with the judges. In fact, some of Hashem says, the only reason that human beings can judge a case it's because they are sure that Hashem is there. Otherwise, who are you to judge humans? Be sure you get it right. Therefore, therefore, if the person got killed, then definitely the reason is, he was just, doesn't by the way mean he committed that crime, but it means that he deserved to die at that time. Why? Because Hashem is part of the basin. And if Hashem is part of the basin, he must have got what's coming to him. Now we make a very simple deal. That's only in basin. Because Elohim Nitzah. But when some joker in the street tries to shoot somebody else, now Elohim lifts up with him, much by the duke, that he could kill someone unjustly. The Chinook is very particular to say that it's only in Basin that nothing could go wrong, as it were. There are questions on this, of course. There are things in Basin where you have to bring a carbon even for a son. This is what he says. And therefore, the, ba- the default din is when a Basin makes a decision, it must be correct. The inference is, the duke is, if it's not a Basin, it could go wrong. You could do something to somebody who doesn't deserve. That's the opposite of what he said in. Okay, I think the resolution is 
if you look very carefully in the Loshan in Nakama and Nakira there he says his language he, he goes into very great detail he brings the case of uh, David Amalek and Shimi, Shimi Ben Gera who cursed him and he said leave him because he was told to curse as it were, yet he killed him later or he had Shlomo Amalekilim so he deals with it but I think the Loshan suggests over there you look it up the Loshan suggests this that the Maharal in fact the, the Chinuch in fact like the Maharal and like the Nitziv and like the Orachayim and many others holds of what we call this evening the second opinion in other words in Beistin the problem would not arise the person gets his comeuppance but in an individual situation where there's no Beistin he could be subject to the vagary of a human Bechira what does he mean in the Kama? he means that when this person hurts you don't try to hurt him back look to your own lack of schus had you had more protection he wouldn't have been not as you began to say of course he harmed you and he harmed you in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise but look to your own deficiency had you been more meritorious he would have been protected I think that's what he that's what he means ok excuse me I'll leave it to Nace I'll leave it to Nace that has to be a Nace golly that has to be a Nace <laughs> today we only have Nisim Nistorim which is another whole, another whole discussion but he had the Bechira he had the Bechira yeah that's right definitely he's accountable he's accountable definitely yeah. but well, what was, why was he hit? The Bechira can break the, his, his law. According to the second opinion, yes, he can do something that's not deserved. Yes. Let's come back to our case of Basin. And as Rabbi Gluck said, the correct uh, approach, Piscachula says this. When you're sitting on a Basin with two individuals, right? Now you, they're voting one way and you hold another way. Says the Piscachula, here's the cloud. If you're sitting on a Basin and you disagree with the majority, then say the truth. Are they outvote you? This is a base thing. Alakim Mitzvah. Do your best to convince them. Do your utmost to convince them. But in the end, vote for them. And you get outvoted. That's the Rosh Hashem. And someone says, <coughs> But if you're sitting on a base thing where you don't hold the other two are wrong, you hold that they're liars. This ain't no base thing. This is a joke. Say, I don't know. Get out of there. In other words, the, the, the Sanhedrin case that we dealt before is a precedent only for a base thing. But it's not precedent for two people that are lying. And if this case should look very clearly and very, very concisely, he says if one's ever found in such a situation, if you are in a minority opinion in a valid basin, of course you speak out your minority opinion, that's your duty. But if you find yourself in a situation that you personally are convinced is a travesty of, of basin in the first place, there's no other up with that. There your mitzvah is to, is to think. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.